Anyone that's been following current events may have heard about this year's acquisition of the NBA basketball team for $2 billion by Steve Ballmer. The team was called the LA Clippers. What I wanted to do today was talk about another LA Clipper that had generated about $10 billion in terms of its economy during the California gold rush. So taking it back to 1852, the Flying Cloud, which was a clipper ship, sailed from New York to San Francisco. It would take approximately 89 days, and it was a world record up to 1989. What was remarkable about about that was the motivation behind it, which was the California gold rush. It had to be as fast as possible to provide a competitive advantage for people to trade. So I think the takeaway behind this is in modern markets, we should all strive to be like the flying cloud, the clipper ship, in order to capture all the economic booms that are occurring in the world. Welcome to the big trade. You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Hi, thanks for tuning in. I wanted to do a two-part series covering some fascinating frontier and emerging markets with me and my friend Kim Iskian. We have either traveled or been to these places before, and we wanted to share that to you guys, especially going into this new year, thinking about what's going on in the world and all the different dynamics. We've heard about Iran and what's going on there in terms of the sanctions, but what are the ramifications post-sanctions and and how can investors capitalize on some of those interesting opportunities? Also, what's going on in Thailand and and how has the the country behaved post-coup? So um, without any further ado, here's Kim. I'm here with uh, Kim Iskian covering global markets here, and I think this would be a great opportunity for us to start off this uh, show by talking about some very interesting opportunities around the world, considering we're covering global markets with the hedge fund. Kim, love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Thanks, Peter. I write an investment newsletter that focuses on out-of-favor markets around the world where sentiment is bad and and valuations are low. And I go all over and try to put my boots on the ground to figure out whether that sentiment is justified and whether low valuations might, uh, there might be some sort of trigger or catalyst for things to improve. And before I started doing this, I worked in, uh, I was a sell-side analyst in Moscow for nine years. I ran a hedge fund there. I also helped develop stock markets in a few other countries. I worked on the buy side for a while in, in Ireland I was also a uh, consultant and political risk analyst in Washington and elsewhere. So I try to put all of that to work to find exciting ideas for my, uh, for my subscribers in markets around the world. Well, thanks. I know you've been talking about many different countries over the last several months with your work at Stansbury and Global Contrarian Newsletter. And one of the countries that have piqued uh, both your interests and mine as well is actually Iran. And, you know, I've been trying to find 
a great investment thesis so for Iran over the last, say, few quarters. And as you've seen, they constantly make the headlines. And I, I do find myself having a difficult time grasping why I would want some exposure in Iran. So what, what are your thoughts overall? And, and what do you think about the recent, recent nuclear talks between Iran and the Security Council? And what do you think the effects will be based on the current sanctions that are pre-existing, which has frozen up to $100 billion in capital the world over with Iran? Well, Peter, I think one of the things that I think is most interesting about Iran is that pretty much the only thing you ever hear about it is is about nuclear uh, its nuclear ambitions and about what a terrible a terrible place it is and what an, uh, what an awful country it is. But what you don't really get a sense of is that it is, I think, potentially a, an enormously exciting story. It's a country with 77 million people. It has the world's fourth largest proven oil reserves, second largest proven gas reserves. Demographically, it's in a sweet spot. It is a country where I went there in, in February, and the only things you can buy from the West that pretty much the rest of the world can buy all the toys what you can buy in iran you can buy coca-cola and you can buy electronics mm-hmm. but all the other stuff that people buy in the rest of the world you can't buy in iran because of sanctions so there are i think a few different dimensions of what one day will happen in iran there's going to be for, for starters there's going to be an absolutely enormous consumer boom one day when people in iran are able to buy cars they're able to buy iphones legally they're able to just buy all this stuff that the rest of the world can buy. There's been massive underinvestment in infrastructure, in the energy infrastructure, and, and just in, in walking down the streets of, of Tehran, of, of other town, of other cities. There, the state of the roads, the state of buildings. There is virtually zero Class A office space in the entire country. There are no hotels up to international standards. There's not a single international chain that operates in Iran because of sanctions. So. I think those are just a few of the dimensions that one day will open up. Now, to get back to your question, I think the key issue is when will sanctions be lifted and when will this sort of dream become a reality? That's Well, it's been about 35 years that Iran has been under sanctions of one sort of another, whether it's by the U.S. and the European Union and or the United Nations. It is largely a political question. I think that at some point it will become an economic question, and I think that as the price of oil uh, remains weak, it will become an increasingly pressing economic issue in Iran because the Iranian people are sick and tired of not being able to travel, not being able to send money anywhere, not being able to buy stuff, not being able to be educated elsewhere. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of internal push there, and I, I can't really get into the internal politics of, of the supreme leader, of the president, and everything else, but it's a very complicated bundle of issues there. I think what's more a little bit easier to understand is the Western and international interest in investing in Iran. When I was there, in, uh, I was visiting Tehran and, and Isfahan, a, a city a few hundred miles away. Within a few weeks of when I was there, there were major trade delegations from France and from Germany, and these were CEOs of global multinationals based in France, based in Germany, who were visiting, trying to lay the groundwork for 
well, to meet key key decision makers in Iran and to lay the groundwork for potential investment in the future. Right. At some point, that will be, um, I think, an important driver. You might have some of these countries that will say, look, the, if you politicians don't figure this out, we are going to do everything we can to push you to figure this out. And in the meantime, China and Russia are significant investors in Iran, and they'll continue to push as well. So when you look at a perfect example of this, and it's been frustrating in terms of bilateral trade, is the trade between India and Iran, in which Iran's able to export some of their crude oil over to India, but the the capital is held in the Indian currency. And what is being exchanged is actually soft commodities like rice in exchange for the crude oil, which is still relatively frustrating for the Iranians in terms of their economy. I, I think that in terms of these sanctions, like... You're indicating to me that you're noticing some interest from these countries to figure out any way or any means possible to continue to trade with Iran. And I get a sense that Iran's very much open to trading with many countries, especially Asia. Yeah, very much so. I think Iran would, well, the, the language of money is international. And Iranians certainly would love to trade anything with anybody anyway. But for Western businesses, that is a legal issue because mm-hmm. they're, they're, when sanctions were eased somewhat, there, all, there are a number of, of exceptions, but it's still difficult. And it's most difficult because Iran is not part of the Iranian banks. The Iranian financial system is not part of the SWIFT system. So it's just physically impossible to, to transfer money into the country or transfer money out of the country. Right. And that's a serious logistical challenge, as you can imagine. One of the interesting um, stories I've heard, actually, is that if one wanted to buy various petroleum products and if you were actually somehow got the visa to enter into Vietnam, you'd have to somehow carry some of the the physical cash with you in order to purchase some of these commodities, which is, you know theoretically impossible to achieve, but that is one of the requirements or ways in which they could actually accept purchases from private buyers, actually. Hmm. Interesting. Something else that they that they do, it's in, a, in essence a cash swap. So there are all sorts of entities that are actually set up and, and recognized by the Iranian Central Bank that, that operate in other countries. They're called exchange bureaus. So if I'm in Iran and I want to have I want to give cash to somebody in, let's say, India, as you yep. as you said. And this is an entity that exists purely to, if you think of an oil swap, it's a cash swap. So no money is actually exchanged. It doesn't go through any sort of wire. But there's somebody in India who wants currency from Iran and someone in Iran who wants currency from India. So they, through this kind of cash broker, come to an arrangement right, right. to exchange money without exchanging anything. Nothing physically moves, and that's how they... That's how all these transactions are done. Very similar to uh, China, I've also noticed is that countries that experienced a lot of sanctions will try to find all these alternative routes to be able to invest or to trade with various different countries. So, for example, the Chinese will build up uh, special purpose vehicles within countries like Singapore in order to trade without the various restrictions that the Chinese might have with other countries. And I've heard and seen anecdotal evidence that Iran also does that as well, which is 
not surprising, but but definitely worth noting. So, Kim, like, what do you think are ways in which investors can get some exposure into these markets? Because the reality is they're doing quite well in terms of the equity markets. The TSC has been performing, I believe, up quite a bit so far this year even. The, uh, the Tehran Stock Exchange, yeah, it's actually one of the cheapest equity markets in the world. It trades at a P.E. ratio of uh, under six, about five and a half. And it's a, uh, it has a market cap of total market capitalization of around $125 billion. So it's by no means a small market yeah the yeah the trick is to if if you're a a western investor i believe it's pretty much impossible for you to legally invest mm-hmm. because of sanctions and if you're from anywhere else you're faced with these same issues and challenges of trying to get money into the into the market most of the about a quarter of the total market cap is petrochemicals and, and energy companies right and there are uh, you know, there are there is a, a broker that's set up that is trying to solicit international investors to uh, to invest through them. So there is certainly the mechanism, and the Iranian regulators have no problems. They they don't care where your money comes from. They are interested in attracting investment. So there are ways. Otherwise, if you don't want to go that route, and I don't think for all that many people would want to go that route, there are some companies that are perhaps positioned to benefit from um, increasing their business in Iran the day that sanctions open up. I right. think the thing is it's kind of tricky because these are companies that don't do any business there now okay. but will may someday in the future. So how important or material will that be to their bottom line? I have no idea. I think one company that's interesting is a, a Turkish food retailer called Migros mm-hmm. which is big in Turkey and it also, for a while, it was big throughout Central Asia and Russia. They sold off their Russian operations. They sold off a few other operations. They're one of the largest food retailers in Kazakhstan right now. And the point there is that they've operated in those sorts of markets, which are just full of uncertainty, where they've had to build supply chains from scratch. And Turkey, of course, is a, uh, is a neighbor of Iran, and they do have some cultural similarities. And you can imagine quite easily that the day that Iran opens up, Migros will be on the doorstep saying, hey, we want to take all, all these mom-and-pop stores and buy some of them out. We want to create supply chains. I think this would be a company that would be well-positioned to benefit from that. So you're taking very similar to people that have been waiting for countries like Cuba to open up with the U.S. You're taking an approach in which you're buying... Uh, a particular equity within a different country that's in a position to capture gradual opening up of a particular country that you want to get exposure into without taking the actual direct investment or foreign indirect investment routes due to the various different regulatory requirements that are needed by foreign investors. So I guess in the case of Cuba, one wants to buy as many cruise ship companies as possible that could be in a position to capture entry into the market when when that market does eventually open up. Yes, I think the, and, and there are two different dimensions also, one is whether a new market will have a real material difference. For example, you would not buy, in my mind, you wouldn't buy ExxonMobil in yes. anticipation of them getting a field in Iran because it will be a drop in the bucket for ExxonMobil. Mm-hmm. And Iran may one day become important for, for example, Migros. Yeah. But 
even if Iran were to open up tomorrow, would Migros have any sort of impact? No, it would take years to build that all out. But So there's the one side, what will be the actual material impact today and someday? But then the other side of it is if I'm a portfolio manager, a frontier market or emerging market portfolio manager, and I'm trying to figure out how I can access Iran and tomorrow sanctions are listed, I will be busting my butt to figure out how to do that. And there are going to be a, there's going to be a small number of names that will rise up to the, uh, to the top. And I think part of the trick is to figure is to kind of game that process before those people managing billions of dollars have, uh, have really thought about it. Do, do we know about any kind of events driven impacts uh, so far that has actually affected the, the Turkish stock? For example, there was, there's a new president of Iran that came into office since about 2013. After that new change in, in presidency, did you see any kind of material impact on the stock? I know that you were covering it slightly after, but these are some of the, like the early indications in, in cues. Because according to my understanding, is the, the current president is considered a moderate, and he's He's open and willing to work towards relatively repairing the relationships with the West. No, I think where you saw that impact was really in the uh, in the Tehran stock exchange. Right, the Tehran stock exchange moved pretty much in line with expectations for the uh, for the new president, and then once he was elected, also moved in line with expectations for what he would do and sorts of reforms he would carry out, and then. I think markets all over the world, when they're driven by politics, follow this sort of general pattern. There's expectation, and yeah. then there's when reality sets in that, oh, it's just one guy, and no matter how powerful he is in whatever country, one guy or one, one, one woman can only do so much, yeah. and investors uh, become disappointed quite quickly, and we've certainly seen that in, in the uh, Tehran stock exchange, which it corrected after, uh, after the new president had been in, uh, in office for a while, and, and it's still... Uh, hasn't really picked up since then. Yeah. So on the topic of that one guy and markets being disappointed by that one guy, let's jump over to a personal favorite of yours, Russia. I know you've been in in Russia. You've lived there for a period of time. Maybe you can give us a little bit of background of your experiences in Russia and, and what you think about the ongoing conflict between Russia and the Ukraine and how it's impacting the capital markets there. Well, Russia is, I was, yeah, I first moved to Moscow in 1996, and uh, it's, it's a market that's been dominated by, well, to a larger degree, driven by politics and driven by the perception that Russia is a full political risk. What I did, I spent about nine years trying to convince investors that, in fact, that was not the case, <laughs> that Russia was just like other markets other emerging markets. And yes, of course, there was corruption. Of course, it was not particularly transparent. Of course, it was too reliant on on commodities. But really, it was it, it should not have traded it. That's just a substantial discount to, uh, to other emerging markets. And that was a very difficult case to make for a long time. Right. And the Russian equity market is historically traded at a pretty substantial discount to emerging markets. But then what happened... As we all know, earlier this year, Russia annexed Crimea and the conflict with Ukraine broke out. And all of this 
concern over Russia's political risk actually came home to roost and turned out that Russia is not like a lot of other countries, a lot of other emerging markets, but there is a very qualitative and quantitative political risk that does deserve a substantial discount to other markets. So right now the Russian equity market trades at a PE ratio of around five over the, its average for the past five years is closer to six and a half, seven, which is still very low. And I think it's difficult. I don't know. You, you read and hear a lot about how oh, Russian, the Russian equity market is so cheap and it's going to have to have to correct upwards at some point because once this whole misunderstanding with Ukraine has settled, then of course it should trade at maybe a PE of 10 or 12 like other emerging markets. I don't think that makes any sense at all because even before there was a conflict with Ukraine, before the oil price corrected, before there were sanctions on the Russian economy, the Russian equity market was trading at a PE of, let's say, 7. So if everything were fixed tomorrow and the Russian equity market would revalue by like 30%. Okay, but that's, that's not exactly when you look at the, at the risks still associated. If, and if you look at the unlikeliness of, of everything somehow becoming magically fixed tomorrow, I don't really see, uh, I think there's still more, there's more risk that the Russian equity market will bump along where it is indefinitely rather than any sort of real upside like that. But I think... Uh, a lot of people who just look at the absolute valuation figure tend to uh, tend to believe. So for our fund, we have exposure to the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets Equity Income Fund, which basically screens for stocks with relatively low price to earnings and have high yields in addition to growing free cash flows. And one of the biggest holdings is basically Gazprom and Rosnev within the portfolio. That's as as far as I would go in terms of getting some exposure into these countries like Russia, for example. What are your thoughts on the energy complex within Russia? Well, the energy, pretty much all Russia has going for it is that it is a large, it has enormous energy reserves. Gazprom is by far the world's largest energy company in terms of reserves. Right. It's also majority controlled by the Russian government. Mm-hmm. And the Russian government has, for years, used Gazprom as a piggy bank. When you look at the capital expenditure budget of Gazprom, uh, for years and years, it's been absolutely enormous. It's been growing, and no one can ever quite put their finger on where all that money goes. <laughs> and, you know, that's... that's if, if, as an investor, you say, you know what, I accept that, and if this company trades at a PE of two or three, which is where it is now, right. I think all of that risk is pretty much integrated into it, which is fair enough. The dividend, though, is perennially at risk. In case if one day someone in the Russian government says, you know what, I want to pad my four hundred one k plan a little bit, my retirement plan, yeah, I think I'll cut Gazprom's dividend. Obviously, I'm simplifying just a bit. Mm-hmm. But there is the risk that Gazprom is not run as a as a company. It's run as a branch of government. And Gazprom was a branch of the government during Soviet times. Right. So there is a price for everything, whether that price is a PE of four or six or two. I don't know. But I think that as an investor, you have to understand that you, as a minority investor, you have zero rights there. And, and this is... 
you can say that of most companies anyway, but this is something different. This is the Russian government who you're, who you're uh, partnering with. Right. And I think I think for investors that are investing into Gazprom based on its low valuations, they definitely need to consider the the geopolitical factors in regards to the allocation of the capital that Gazprom chooses to use internationally. As we continue to see events erupt uh, throughout Russia, we've seen Gazprom sign deals with countries like China. Uh, there's also been some public awareness about Gazprom's presence in in a refinery here in Vietnam as well. So we don't know if the allocation of capital is based on like the best kind of investments or signing the best kind of deals for the the best prices of, of natural gas or crude oil. But um, I, I think that we need to take that into consideration is how they're using their capital for international expansion or growth, but taking into account the geopolitics that are uh, involved as well. Oh, exactly. Yeah, Gazprom is... As a as an organ of government, it is very much a geopolitical tool. Yeah. And the day that the Kremlin says we are going to cut off gas shipments to Ukraine, Gazprom does that. No one says, "Wait a second, let's do a cost benefit analysis and how will this impact our margins?" That is completely irrelevant. Right. And when yes, when the Russian government is looking to uh, diversify, well, to because of sanctions, it's looking to sell to China. It will arrive at some deal and whether the economics for Gazprom shareholders actually makes sense is irrelevant. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 